Welcome to the Get a Grip podcast. I'm your host, Corey Grip. It's been a couple weeks. A lot has been going on. Sports World NBA Finals wrapped up about about a week ago. Um, NFL training camps are underway. And uh, today to help me kind of just break down everything that's been going on, my good friend Eddie Whitman's joining me today on the Get a Grip podcast. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Excited to be back again. It'll be some fun. Oh, it's going to be great. Um, so just kind of just wanted to start with the NBA Finals. I, I kind of felt like it was appropriate to kind of just let itself play out before I wanted to kind of discuss like what kind of happened. Um, but kind of first for you, like what was a couple two-part question, how impressed were you with Giannis on a, onto the Kumpo's performance? And secondly – what to you was there were a lot of reasons why they won this series, but what was the biggest reason why the Bucks won this series? Yeah, it was definitely a great series, and especially Giannis. You see some guys, even these elite players, just struggle in the big moments, but Giannis clearly attacked this moment. He's gotten probably more heat than most players, maybe the most. He's up there in terms of getting heat from the outside basketball world the last two, three years up, the early playoff exits. Even though his free throw shooting hasn't been great still this year, it's consistently improved throughout his career. And he missed one in game six, which was pretty impressive. But he, he's never going to be the best free throw shooter. But you could see that he's the kind of guy that puts the work in, and it, and it paid off. But he committed to not shooting jump shots in, in the finals. Maybe a little 10-foot fadeaway jump shot, but that, that's perfectly fine. That's all you really need him to do to keep the defense honest, not around the rim. You don't need him shooting threes. You don't need him shooting 17-footers. If he can shoot a little foul line jump shot 10 feet and in, it was clearly effective, and he dominated games three through six. Uh, I was pretty – the reason why they won, I mean, after games one and two, they kind of looked dead in the water. Uh, but then their their size just took over the series. I think – I really like Jay Crowder on uh, Phoenix, but him him playing 40-plus minutes most, most games because Sarge got hurt, the Suns really just didn't have the size and the strength inside to – Stop the Bucks. Besides DeAndre Ayton, there was very limited rim protection, and the Bucks clearly took advantage of that, in my opinion. You know, I really thought. You know, listen, Giannis is unbelievable. He averaged 35, 13 boards, five assists, two blocks, and a steal. His sons had no answer for him. I mean, you know, I, I kind of thought Monty Williams started just. He looked overwhelmed from a coaching matchup. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like Budenholzer made a lot of mistakes in this playoff run. I, I still don't think he's an elite coach. I thought he got a lot of breaks. And the the lack of adjustments that this team made in every single series um, after they swept Miami was just unbelievable. But give him credit, there were some really good adjustments that he made after the first two games. I thought the biggest one that they made, and I thought this changed the whole series, not a lot of people have talked about it. Obviously, Giannis was unbelievable. He came up with big plays after big plays. And and a lot of um, iconic, memorable plays. And we'll, we'll talk about Giannis's um, finals performance in terms of, you know, historical finals uh, performances over the last 25, 30 years after, you know, we talk about the finals. But I really feel like what changed the series was, well, one, I thought Giannis's free throw shooting came in the two biggest games in the series, game three and game six. He shot 76% in game three, 89% in game six. I mean, that is what it's what it's all about. I mean, I feel like at this point in Giannis's career, you know, people gave Shaq a lot of flack for being a bad free throw shooter, but Shaq always seemed to hit the free throws when they mattered most. And I think Giannis did that in the two biggest games of the series. 
But I thought Drew Holiday picking up Chris Paul full court changed the series. Uh, I don't think a lot of people have talked about that. Uh, people want to talk about Drew Holiday really struggling offensively, but in game five, when they needed him, he really came through in the second quarter. Um, he dropped two thirds of his points in the second quarter. I mean, he was, he was on fire, but I, I really felt like taking Chris Paul out of the game. I mean, I don't know about you, but Chris Paul had a lot of empty stats. I never really felt like Chris Paul impacted the series after they went to Milwaukee for game three and then going forward, you know, he, he was averaging, you know, close to 20 points the rest of the way, but it never felt like they were impactful 20. It kind of felt like where was Chris Paul the whole time? It never really felt like he had a huge impact. And it, and I think the only memorable plays that Chris Paul had in this series were the turnovers. I mean, I don't really, I don't know if it's just me. I, I mean, he was great in game one, but I just feel like a lot of what Chris Paul is going to be remembered for in this series, as great as his playoff run was, were the mistakes that he made in the big moments. I don't know if you agree with that, but. I thought Drew Holiday was sensational on the defensive end and it kind of forced the Suns to be more of an ISO team, which is something they weren't all season. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. That's a really good point. I mean, as you said, the turnovers Chris Paul had, even in the Western Conference finals, throughout the Western Conference playoffs, he was historically good in terms of assists and turnovers. He literally would go games without one turnover. So, yeah, as you said, Drew Holiday certainly, you could tell just – not not frustrated Chris Paul, but definitely made him work for everything. And back in the offseason when the Bucks made that trade, I think everyone, including myself and you too, were kind of unsure how to feel about it. But it turns out that was kind of the perfect player to compliment Middleton and, and Giannis because basically all the things, even though Holiday couldn't really – he wasn't shooting the ball great during the finals. He was orchestrating the whole offense, as you said, picking up Chris Paul full court basically the entire game and seemed to have warmed down. He – Chris Paul was battling injuries throughout the playoffs, so certainly I think Holiday, as you said, made a massive impact. Even though he wasn't making shots, just everywhere, everywhere else on the floor, he was contributing every single game, every single minute. Here's a crazy stat. Chris Paul had 21 total turnovers in the series. That was way more than any other series in the playoffs for the Phoenix Suns. Just wanted to kind of throw that out there. I think the Bucks' defensive presence and size uh, definitely had a huge part in that, but – why aren't we talking about Chris Middleton? Like, I, I feel like for the last week, um, obviously Giannis deserves all the focus, but I don't think what people are talking about is like if, if, if Middleton and Holiday, and I said this before the series started, they both had to be efficient and impactful in the same games, like for them to win, for them to have a chance to win, both of those guys were going to have to be efficient scoring or have an impact in other ways in the game. Giannis carried this team throughout the series but they wouldn't have won if it weren't for big performances by those two. I mean, why aren't we talking about Chris Middleton more? I know he had a couple bad games in games one and two, but he really seemed to pick it up the last three games of the series, shooting over 45% and made a lot of big shots. I don't know. Like why, why aren't we talking about Chris Middleton? I don't know. He made big shot after big shot, not even just in the finals, but at the playoffs, even I think it was game five, he was struggling the whole way. And then he made a, he made a big shot with like two minutes left, like a fadeaway jump shot over Devin Booker. But yeah, he deserves all the credit in the world. He also got a lot of slack. He can't be a number two, all that kind of stuff. And he proved it. He was pretty much scoring at will throughout the playoffs. And I think it says a lot about this Bucks team, how it was built. I think even the Suns too, to a certain extent, I know it's kind of off topic, but I guess the notion for about five years was you need to build super teams, to have a chance to win. And I think, Finally, in the NBA, we were able to, I guess, reverse that thinking because the Bucks and Suns 
both made a, I think a very similar move in terms of acquiring holiday and Chris Paul. But I just think this, as you said, this Bucks team was built with their defense, their size, and a guy like Middleton was able to play off Giannis. If Giannis can get downhill like that and open it up for Middleton and holiday, that's what pretty much ended it for the Suns. Just they had, the Bucks had so many weapons, but I totally agree. Chris Middleton deserves a ton of credit because he continuously made big shots throughout the playoffs. And you know, I'm going to take credit for this next point because I was saying this the first two games of the series, and it and it frustrated, it just frustrated me so much that Bobby Portis was not playing more. Did I not tell? I told you this. I told you this guy. Gets no love at all. You know how many you know how many sports shows, sports talk radio shows I listened to throughout the finals, and not one time did they ever mention Bobby Portis. They always talked about the same guys: Booker, Chris Paul, Giannis, Middleton, Holiday, Aiton. They never talked about Bobby Portis and Pat Connington. Those guys were the unsung heroes in this series. And you could ask every single player on that Bucks team, and they would all say that those two guys, if they didn't have them, they might not have won the series. I don't know if you I, – I think you agree with me on that. I mean, for, for me with Portis, first two games, he barely played. And then after that – and I told you this. Like, Brooke Lopez is a good player, but the, every team in the playoffs, the Nets, the Hawks, and the Suns, they all did the same thing. They ran the high pick and roll. They knew Lopez was going to back off because if he played up, they would drive right by him. And the mid-range was open every time. Kevin Durant cooked him. Trey Young got the floaters and the pull-up mid-range if he wanted it every single time. Chris Paul and Devin Booker got that shot almost every single time they wanted, and they hit a lot of those shots. I felt like putting Portis in the game, really, along with Holiday picking up Chris Paul full court, I really do feel like that was one of the turning points of the series because his energy on the glass – and his energy on the defensive end of the floor to, to pick guys up more near the three-point line, not give them as much space to attack, that was huge for them. I felt like Bobby Portis, his rebounds came at big points in the game as far as you know impact and momentum. And I just felt like his athleticism was a better fit for the pick-and-roll defense to guard Chris Paul. And going the rest of the way, games three through six, Portis and Portis – and Lopez played about the same minutes, but it felt like Portis played more important minutes. And then as we talked about before, Pat Connington, he only averaged nine points, but he got a lot of offensive rebounds. He kept a lot of possessions alive. And that hustle and energy from both of those guys is contagious. And having guys like that on your team that are willing to do the little things to help you win, that's so impactful. And I just feel like these guys are not getting any love at all, but these two guys were a vital part of this championship run. Yeah, there were so many guys. You can tell the whole playoffs on this Bucks team. You got to give credit to the Bucks for filling out their roster the way they did. There were so many guys that contributed in different different areas. And as you said, Bobby Portis in the finals, and he barely even played in the net series. As you said, barely played at the start of the finals. Stayed ready, made a huge impact, especially in Game Six. Maybe the reason why they closed it out in Game Six. But yeah, I agree. Bobby Portis was a good move to move him in. Chris Paul always had, could do whatever he wanted, even Booker, too, in the pick-and-roll with Brooke Lopez. And Lopez is totally effective in other areas, but the Suns just went at him every single possession. So the Portis move definitely, I think, changed the series. Just his athleticism, his shooting, he, he certainly made a huge impact, and so did Connington, as you said. 
I think the the biggest thing that I noticed from the Suns before we move on, I, I have a couple more questions for you, but I just wanted to say that for me, it never felt the Suns never got Chris Paul and Booker going at the same time. I, I think you probably noticed that too. Like it felt like either one of them went off or the other did. It, it ne- they both never seemed to get going offensively at the same time. I mean, Booker had a big game four, a big game five, but it, it never felt but like Chris Paul was kind of invisible as far as impact goes in those two games um, with just, you know, it just felt like his baskets weren't really important and he had some tur- bats, some bad turnovers. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, Devin Booker and DeAndre Aiden were great. I mean, in the playoffs, you know, Booker averaged 27, Aiden averaged a double double. I did feel like their youth got a little bit of exposed in the finals after they went to Milwaukee and then going forward for the rest of the series. I mean, how would you kind of summarize the Suns' season and, um, you know, what did you think uh, of Booker and Aiden's um, playoff runs as far as, you know, evolving and growing up before our eyes? Yeah, going into the season, I thought the Suns could be a solid playoff team, maybe a top five seed. But um, to make it to the finals was kind of a shock. But, yeah, as you said, I think their youth kind of showed in the finals. Uh, Booker and Aiden were great throughout the whole playoffs, even Bridges, Cam Johnson, all those guys. But they seemed to hit a wall, but it certainly was an awesome season for them. And uh, last question, uh, do you think this was a flash in the pan? I, I keep hearing this, um, you know, comment that people are like, well, you know, I think the Suns are going to be the Miami Heat of the bubble. Like, this isn't going to happen again. Um, I mean – the West next year is going to be really tough. I mean, the Warriors are going to be fully healthy. Jamal Murray's coming back for the Nuggets. LeBron and AD are going to be rested and healthy. Um, the Clippers are going to be competitive. Uh, the Grizzlies are getting better. Um, geez, who else am I forgetting? The, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Portland, as, as long as Dame's still in Portland, they're going to be competitive. Um, you know, where do you, where do you kind of see the Suns next year? I mean, I don't. I don't know if a finals run is possible again, given all the help that they got to get there. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from them, but let's face facts. Like they got a lot of injury help along the way. That's just the reality. Um, that's not a, that's not a, um, that's not a shot at them at all. It's just, just the reality. Same thing with Milwaukee. They got some, some help along the way. Um, I mean, is this a flash in the pan? I mean, like how, how, how do you think this team will do next year? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of impossible to say they could be the favorites, but there's no reason to believe they can't be a competitive, at least a threat in the West. With Booker and Aiton and Bridges and Cam Johnson and Chris Paul comes back to what he has been this year and even the year before, there's no reason why they can't compete at the top of the West. Um, to pick them as the favorite, I think that'd be a little bit, a little bit off. But in terms of the Heat, comparing them to the Heat, I, I also think it's probably a separate note. The Heat went through a lot this year, so I think every year is different. So. I'm not going to say the Phoenix is going to is the Miami Heat. I think they're going to be a really good team next year. I think the Heat from two years ago. I think they're going to be better next year. Um, but yeah, I guess it's kind of a long-winded answer. But the, the Suns, will, they certainly should be a threat. But they're definitely not going to be among the favorites. But I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see them as a top four seed in the West. I think that's very attainable for them coming back next year. Kind of shifting away from the NBA Finals, um, but just some other storylines that came out of the Finals. So it's still kind of about the Finals, but not really. You get what I'm saying? Um, So I've been hearing this for the last week, and I know you have too, that Giannis is now the best player in the league. Um, I'll just – I'll be the first to say I've fallen for this trap before with KD and the Warriors, and then I said the same thing about Kawhi, 
I'm not going to be a prisoner of the moment. Um, Giannis is now established for sure, 100% as a top three player in the league. I don't care what anybody says. I know he has limitations, but so does LeBron and Kevin Durant and Kawhi and James Harden and Steph. Like, every player in this league has some limitations and weaknesses. Okay, let's not pretend – I'm not going to pretend like there's no perfect player. Everyone's got some flaws. Um, so where do you kind of see Giannis as the best – do you see him as the best player in the league? Because I, I still think it's LeBron. I mean, I'm not going to – I'm not going to pretend like, you know – yeah, LeBron's had a couple injuries the past two years, but when he's healthy, I mean, he was the MVP front runner the first half of the season before he sprained his ankle. I think people forget that. I know he looked like a shell of himself. I, I don't care what anybody says. LeBron was he looked injured in the first round of the playoffs. Like he just he didn't have the the same explosion that he normally has, and he just kind of felt like he was going through the motions. It didn't really I didn't really see the same like aggressive attacking LeBron you know, setting himself up, getting his teammates involved. Like, it just kind of felt like he was moping through the first round. I mean, um, but I still think he's the best player in the league, and I still think Kevin Durant's a better overall player than Giannis, even though Giannis won the head-to-head in the in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly up there. I think even – I think probably LeBron probably is still the guy at the top, but I think guys like Giannis and KD and even Kawhi, maybe even – probably Steph is right below that, but I think they're starting to gain ground. It might be seeing eye-to-eye with LeBron just the way they've played – Especially Katie and Giannis. I know Kawhi is going to be dealing with a major injury now, once again. But um, yeah, I'm not going to say Giannis is the best player in the league right now. I think that's a little bit, a, a little bit of a rush in my eyes. I certainly think he can be, can become that in the next few years if he can simply if he can make free throws and make a little short jump. Be the most dominant player in the sport maybe we've seen in years, probably since Shaq, and he might be already. But yeah, to say he's the best player in the league, I think it's a little bit quick for that, but. He may be on track to attain that at some point. Yeah, I mean, KD was it was incredible. I mean, he probably had the best game of his career in Game Five the, of the Eastern Conference Semis, and then you know, Game Seven, you know, he did all he could, and he just ran out of gas in overtime. I mean, that last shot he threw up an air ball. I mean, to me, that's just fatigue. His legs were shot at that point. I mean, but I mean, it's hard to say if the Bucks would have won the title if the Clippers, Nets, or Lakers were fully healthy. That's really hard to say. But the one thing I'll say about the Bucks is they took advantage of the situation that was brought to them. I mean, injuries are a part of the game and a lot of guys got hurt this year. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to give teams an excuse. I mean, bro, like my, like, like my Celtics lost Jalen Brown right before the playoffs and I wasn't making excuses. I mean, they probably weren't going to beat the Nets anyway, but I mean, it's part of the game, man. Like guys got hurt all year. So, I mean, it's just part of it, but I I felt like KD was playing at such an elite level um, in the playoffs without James Harden for most of it. And then Kyrie obviously got hurt um, in game three against the Bucs. But, I mean, KD was just incredible. And and I, it's hard to overlook that. I know Giannis beat him head-to-head, but the Bucs had the better overall team. And KD did all he could to keep his team in the game. I think one, one question I have about Giannis, and you kind of mentioned it already, what does he have to continue to do to work on his game? Because we know he's going to continue to work on his game. I still don't think Giannis needs a three-point shot. And I've been saying all season that I think he needs to consider fixing his free throw routine and his shooting motion because it just doesn't feel or look natural. And I think that leads to inconsistencies and sometimes his confidence lacks because of that. I don't know like what your thoughts are on what Giannis needs to work on, but I don't really think Giannis needs a three-point shot at all. He just needs to have a nice, good mid-range and be more consistent at the line. And that's going to be enough to really get him over the – you know, maybe get him to be the best player in the league. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think I think it's important to notice, like, I think the mid-range game was kind of disvalued for a couple of years. But I think in this playoffs in particular, 
when offenses lag for teams, the teams that had guys that can get to their spot and make a pull-up jumper were the teams that kept advancing. I know Devin Booker and Chris Paul, they lost in the finals, but the big reason why they got to that point is they consistently, shot clock running down, were able to get off a good look. As you said, Giannis, he doesn't need to shoot threes. And honestly, the Bucks probably don't want him shooting threes. They want him in the paint. If, if they're going to dare him to shoot, a little 12-footer is perfectly fine. And if he can make his free throws and a little short jump shot, teams aren't going to be able to guard him because they really struggle to already just defending the rim. But if he can get a little consistent short jump shot, doesn't need to be threes because I think the Bucs don't want him shooting those shots. They have plenty of guys that can shoot the ball from the perimeter. I think that's what the Bucs probably are looking for, I would assume. All right. So we're going to stay with Giannis here. I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. Um, Giannis's final performance was among the greats in a winning effort. Uh, let me just preface this by saying uh, Jerry West, back in the late 1960s, he won finals MVP, but for the losing team. That's the only time it's ever happened. He was so incredible against the Celtics. He was averaging like 40. I mean, but they lost the, they lost the series. And then obviously we all know Allen Iverson's 2001 finals performance against the Lakers was sensational, but they lost in five. Um, I'm going to give you, so I, I did a little research. I looked up like six or seven incredible finals performances, uh, since the mid 1980s. And I want you to tell me if Giannis, there's only one finals performance of the last 25, 30 years that I think is better. Here's the thing with me with Giannis and, and finals performances. It's all about storylines and memorable moments. That's why to me, so I have LeBron James is the best finals performance of the last 30 years because of a couple things. He's got the greatest playoff block. I think Giannis's block on DeAndre Ayton on the alley-oop attempt was a better basketball play, but LeBron's block is more memorable. That play will go down in NBA history. That play will be remembered. That might be the defining play of his career, but Giannis's moments, the storylines, all the adversity, all the all the doubt for his whole career, he can't win big. And then to have the alley-oop and one at the end of game five, the key block against DeAndre Ayton in game four, the 50-point clinching performance in game six, he averaged 35, 13, five, and two blocks. That's what it's all about. To me, that's the second best finals performance we've seen. But we also have some incredible performances as well. Michael Jordan in 93 against Charles Barkley and the Suns averaged 41, eight and a half rebounds and six assists. And 95, Akeem Olajuwon averaged 33, 12 points, five. And then Shaq in 2000, 38, 17 boards, three blocks. Magic in 87, 26 points, eight boards, 13 assists and two steals. And then Larry Bird in 84, 27 points, 14 rebounds and four assists. Out of all those, out of all those performances I just listed, would you still say that Giannis is either the best or second best? Because I still think it's hard for me to say that LeBron James's 2016 performance wasn't the best, given the the historical significance. Coming down from three one, averaged nearly a triple double. He was a assist away from averaging a triple double in that series to go with two and a half steals and blocks. I mean, that's pretty great. But Giannis basically carried the Bucks by himself. That's why I have him at number two on top of all the significant storylines and memorable moments. Because to me, that's what it's all about. It's all about the memorable moments 
when trying to capture someone's finals performance? Let's say you. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's hard for him to top what LeBron did with Cleveland. But, yeah, that performance by Giannis was insane. He dominated the entire game. He's the reason they won. He dominated offense, defense, rebounding, got his teammates involved when he had to. It was a memorable performance, as you said. But, yeah, I think LeBron's still got the top of the mantle. But I think Giannis is right there in terms – it might be even with him because that was – every play that had to be made to win the game, he made it. all Every minute he was on the floor – and it was like every single play that had to be made, he did it. Made every foul shot for the most part. Was making making his making his mid range shots, finishing around the rim, blocking shots, rebounding. He just completely dominated the game. And he he, I know it's cliche, but he just wasn't going to lose that game. He was going to make sure they won that game at, at home to close out the series. Well, and also too, I mean, like here's the thing with me with these other guys. As great as these other guys were, okay, let's start with Hakeem. They played the Magic with a young Shaq and a young Penny Hardaway. They were the favorites. They were supposed to win that series. As great as Hakeem was, they were supposed to win. Shaq in 2000, he had a young Kobe as his, as his, as his, you know, as the second best player on the team. And the Pacers had no one that could match Shaq's size and physicality. So again, they were supposed to win. Magic in 87, he had James Worthy and Kareem. Larry Bird in 84, he had. Parrish and, and Danny Ainge and Dennis Johnson and, and Kevin McHale. And then Jordan in 93, as great as he was, again, they were the favorites. And I just felt like Jordan has had a lot of memorable moments in his career, just not in that series. So, again, it, it goes back to moments and then obviously key performances. And I think you're right. Like, I, I want to say that Giannis's performance was better than LeBron's because LeBron did have Kyrie kind of going step for step with them as far as scoring and and producing big moments, but it's hard for me to overlook the fact that LeBron was the leader in that three, one comeback. I'm not going to say that Kyrie didn't have a huge impact because he did. I mean, I felt like Kyrie won that series for the Cavs because as great as LeBron was, there's no way he would have been able to do that alone. So I don't think Kyrie gets enough love for that. You know, despite my strong negative feelings towards Kyrie, I can't deny the fact that he was incredible in that finals and Giannis just didn't have the help. I mean, consistently, like Middleton was inconsistent, has a history of being inconsistent. And then Drew Holiday wasn't efficient in every game in that series. So I think you got to put Giannis's final performance near the top, if not the top. You can definitely make an argument, but I'd, I'd still say you got to take LeBron in 2016. I mean, that was just incredible. I mean, you're just never going to be done again, maybe. Um, the Bucks, the Bucks need. As I said, he made every play they had to make. LeBron did too. Obviously, you said he had Kyrie's help, but to decide who's better, I think Giannis and LeBron both memorable performances. And I mean, hats off to Giannis. He finally accomplished the goal. He definitely. Had. All right. Uh, does this Finals loss affect Chris Paul's legacy? Hmm. I mean. I wouldn't say it hurt, hurts it. It definitely would have really helped it if he could have won that series. Uh, definitely an unfortunate loss. The Bucks really dominated all four the four the last four games of the series. I wouldn't say it hurts it, but he had a, really a golden opportunity to excel it a lot with a championship on his resume. I mean, I still think Chris Paul is a top five point guard, right? I mean, even without a title, you know, Chris Paul. So I think we both agree: Magic Johnson, Steph Curry, Isaiah Thomas, and the Big O, Oscar Robertson, are easily in the top five. So that fifth spot's left between, you know, guys like Chris Paul and Steve Nash and Jason Kidd and John Stockton. 
Let me just say this about Chris Paul. Out of all the guys that we just listed, Chris Paul, everywhere he goes, he wins, right? Um, his rookie year with the Hornets, now the Pelicans, they won 18 games the season before he got there. And then when he got there, they won 20 games his first year there. Clippers, 32 games before he got there, 40 after he got there. And they got to the playoffs for the first time in like six years. Rockets before he got there, 55 wins, semifinals. Next year, best record in the league. Came within a game of taking down the Warriors with KD, Steph, and Clay, And then the Thunder. He went to a tanking Thunder team. They won, they won, they won 48 games tanking after trading Westbrook and Paul George. And they, they came within a game of going to the conference semifinals in the bubble. And then, obviously, the Suns. They went from 34 wins last year to 55 this year, a finals appearance and the second-best record in the NBA. That's pretty great. Not many players can do that. Not many players can say that they have this immediate impact right away. I mean, the Clippers, they were irrelevant for years. They were the laughing stock of the league, even more than the Knicks. And then he gets there, they make the playoffs six straight years, and that relevance has stuck with the team ever since then. And then obviously James Harden. I mean, the Rockets made the playoffs every year, but they were never serious contenders to win at all, and Chris Paul turned them into those contenders for two years. And then he took a Thunder team fresh off of three straight first-round exits, rebuilding, and took them to a competitive seven-game first-round series against the Rockets. And then the Suns, as we all know, they hadn't made the playoffs in 10 years, and as soon as Chris Paul gets there, they go to the finals. I love Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, and John Stockton, but Jason Kidd won a title at the end of his career, and it was never the leader or score that Chris is. Stockton played with Carl Malone, and um, you know Steve Nash never got to the finals but is a two-time MVP in the regular season. It is close, but winning everywhere he goes while always being productive is enough for me to say that he's a top-five point guard. I mean, I don't know what you kind of think about that. I just think that he wins everywhere he goes. He's always productive. Guys always seem to get better when they play with them. Yeah, Chris Paul's demanding and can frustrate guys over time, but I think overall – He's a guy that I'd want to play with a hundred times out of a hundred. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think I have him in that f- number five too. Um, as I said, I think the championship would have really helped him out in terms of his his overall as a player. But there's no denying the fact that he he wins wherever he goes, even though he hasn't won a championship. As you said, you went through the whole list. He wins. He's just a winner. He impacts winning no matter who's around him. I think he has confidence in himself. He, even when he went to OKC, he saw who who he had around him, made it work. And as you said, was one game away from the West semifinals with really helping Shea Gildas-Alexander improve as a player, brought along guys like Danilo Gallinari, Steven Adams. That team definitely overperformed, and the Suns team overachieved too this year. The winner, he hasn't won a championship yet. Hopefully he will at some point in his career. I know it's the years are running late, but he's, he's a winner at the highest level, absolutely. Last question about the NBA Finals and the Chris Paul and Giannis. Um, what do you think it'll take for the Suns to bring Chris Paul back? Because it's pretty – I think it's well known at this point. He's going to opt out of his current contract. Um, I think the Suns need to bring him back on a two- or three-year deal. Anything more than three years I think just cannot happen. But outside of that, what do the Suns have to do um, to really make their roster better? I think their first-round pick from last year, Jalen Smith, I think he'll play a lot more next year. I think this was like a developmental year for him just to kind of get bigger and stronger. But – 
you know, he was a good college player at Maryland. You know, he could stretch the floor and he's good on the boards and good on the defensive end. And I just, I just felt like with Aiton, they didn't need to rush him into action just yet. Um, but like, what do you kind of see that the Suns need to do? I, I kind of feel like they need to add another scorer off the bench and maybe some size. I don't know. Like, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think apparently it, people are saying that Chris Paul wants to go back to Phoenix and Phoenix wants him back, which isn't a huge surprise. But as you said, yeah, a two, three year deal certainly would make sense. Um, yeah, I just don't know how much they really can do because obviously they have to pay their two young guys, Aiden and probably Bridges, too, a pretty good paycheck after next year. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. They certainly – they prove that their depth was limited in the, in the finals. Um, their starting five really carried the, carried the Lord of the team and campaign had some bright moments, and Cam Johnson was pretty consistent. But they could really could use another score off the bench – if Jalen Smith could become that guy off the bench or maybe Sarge can get healthy, I'm not sure he might be out for the season. Uh, but they're certainly limited off their bench, and they have definitely have some moves to make. They might need to add some size, another big. But their their bench depth was, I think, exposed in the finals, and that's going to be, as you said, a big area. They need to add a few impact guys that can provide some punch off the bench for sure. Um, is it more likely that Kawhi Leonard stays with the Clippers or he goes elsewhere? I think I think he stays. I, I I'd be shocked to see him leave. He basically orchestrated getting them getting Paul George and to jump ship. I think would be definitely not a good look for Kawhi. I, I honestly will be shocked to see him leave. Uh, so I think he's gonna be back with the Clippers. He probably will opt out and look for a new contract, but we'll see what happens. I I'd be shocked if he decides to go elsewhere. Yeah, we talked about this before. I think the only team that really fits Kawhi would be the Miami Heat. Like I think that's the perfect fit for him if he does decide to leave, but. I kind of feel like, you know, if he had been healthy, I think it would have been the Clippers and the Bucks in the finals. I mean, you know, the Clippers pulled out a competitive six-game series without Kawhi, and I think had they had him, I think they would have beaten the Suns for sure. Um, I don't think Steve Ballmer is going to let Kawhi go anywhere, and, and Kawhi made it clear, you know, before he signed with the Clippers that, you know, he wants to play and stay in Los, in Los Angeles and California where he was born and raised. I don't think he wants to leave, but as we know with Kawhi, you know, once you cross him, you know, it's kind of hard to get that trust back with him. He's just such an odd guy, great player, but just an odd soul. Um, but I think the Clippers are going to do whatever it takes because they, they gave up their future to sign him by trading for Paul George. And then they just locked up Paul George long-term. Um, yeah. I don't think they're going to let him go anywhere. But if he did leave, I think Miami is a perfect fit for his style of play. Uh, but I agree with you. I'd be shocked if he goes anywhere, especially if he goes to the Lakers. Like, that would just be like, wow, dude. Like, you could have went there two years ago, and now you're going to go there now. Like, uh, I don't know if I like that. Um, same question. This time it's Dame. Obviously, the rumors are stronger. Um, you know, most people think that Kawhi is most likely going to stay, but there is some doubt there. With Dame – where like is he more likely to stay and or go and if he does get traded I mean where is the place for him because I feel like there are a lot of teams that would be interested in Dame but I don't think there would be the same amount of the same amount of teams that are interested I don't think the same number of there there wouldn't be the same number of teams that could give a good offer so like if Dame does get traded I mean like where do you think would be the best place for him to go or the team that could give the best package to get Dame yeah, I I personally think it's a lot of fake rumors about Dame. I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's kind of doing similar to what Russell Wilson did with in the NFL. I just think he wants to push Portland to say that he wants to stay, but he doesn't 
this team isn't good enough to win a championship. And I think wants to see some roster upgrades. Uh, I think they can. They have a lot of players. They have a lot of. I think they have options what they can do to build around Dame in different ways because clearly the way the team is built right now isn't working. Uh, so I, personally, I think he's going to be staying staying put. Um, in t- in terms of, I think teams that can give up enough to get him, I think. The fit's kind of funky, but Golden State certainly has enough assets and young players and picks to go get him, but that would have to happen in the next two days. So I doubt that happening. Maybe the Knicks, just a lot of young players and picks, but I also don't see that happening. Maybe Boston, because they can quote Jalen Brown or something like that. But at the end of the day, I don't see him going anywhere. I just think it's – unless it happens in the next two days before the draft, I don't see how a move can be made this offseason. I think the I think you agree with this, but, like, for me, like, Portland's biggest weakness since Dame's been there is their wing play. I mean, they've never had – um, elite defenders or scores on the wing. I, I think that's been their biggest weakness over the years. And, and I also don't think that their inside play has been great ever since LaMarcus Aldridge left um, to go play for the Spurs a few years ago. I mean, you know, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, and Nurkic are all free agents after the year. I feel like two of those guys are going to get traded. Um, I, I think bringing back Carmelo is a good play for him. I think Carmelo at this point in his career understands that he's a, a sixth man off the bench, but he did a lot of good things for them the past couple of years coming off the bench. I think that's a smart idea, but, you know, maybe look into a trade, trading CJ McCollum, Nurkic and Covington. I mean, those are all good veteran players um, that could help other playoff teams. I just think McCollum is not a good number two. He's more of a three or a four. He's just too inconsistent in the playoffs. Um, and Covington wasn't that great this year, but still has had some good years of it, you know, the last you know couple of years. And obviously Nurkic just looked terrible guarding Jokic in the first round. Um, I think they could get. I think they could get someone for those three good players. I don't know Bradley Beal. Maybe. I mean, I feel like Bradley Beal is going to get traded. I mean, I think Bradley Beal understands. We're going to talk about him in a second, but I kind of feel like Bradley Beal is going to go either to the Warriors or the Blazers. I mean, maybe the Blazers. I mean, I don't know. I haven't heard any like ties for that, but you know, Bradley Beal. There have been rumors. Um, I agree with you. I don't think Dame's going anywhere. Um, I think he wants to stay in Portland. I don't think he's ever wanted to leave, but it's just frustrating. And he's trying to play his cards uh, similar to Russell Wilson. So I agree with you there. But Bradley Beal, before we kind of transition into other topics, I've heard Celtics. I've heard Lakers. I've heard uh, – I think Portland could make some sense. And I've also heard the Warriors – if Bradley Beal does get traded, I mean, where do you kind of see him ending up? I mean, I think the Warriors could make a play for any of these guys because they just have two lottery picks, and then they have, you know, a promising big man in Wiseman, and then Andrew Wiggins' his contract is expensive, but he's still a good player. So, I mean, like, where Bradley Beal, like, if he does get traded, like, where do you kind of see that playing out? Yeah, I think the Warriors makes the most sense just because of the assets they have. But as I said about uh... – Dame Willard, any of these trades most likely in the short term will have to be made in the next two, three days before the draft because if the Wizards are going to trade a guy like Bradley Beal, they're going to want some picks in this draft to be able to build up this their young core, and that would probably follow trading Westbrook. So I think it'd have to be go time right now. So I don't know if Beal wants a trade, but if he wants one, he's going to have to, I guess, push it now because the Wizards are going to want to get something immediate back for him. And with the draft being on Thursday, they'll probably want both lottery picks from the Warriors from a pick side and probably more players and maybe more picks. So, I I mean, it's kind of a time crunch right now. But, yeah, if he were to get traded, I think Golden State, just in terms of what they can give to Washington to, I guess, fully reset the clock for their team, I think that would make the most sense. But it would have to be fast just because of the time frame. Because if not, there's really no point in trading them in my eyes if you're not getting anything back for the upcoming season. 
Yeah, and can, I'll just say one last thing. I'm so tired of the damned of the Warriors rumors. It's so stupid. It's never going to happen. You know, Damian Lillard thinks that he's better than Steph Curry. So if you think you're better than somebody, why would you go join them? Because then people call you a sellout. And I know, you know, social media people and media members freak out. And they're like, oh, well, he's sold out. It's like, no, like he's not going to the Warriors. Portland would never do that to themselves. That would be torture for three to four years. Like they're not going to do that. Okay. I just want to throw that in there because I think that's one of the dumbest rumors of the last five years. I just think that'll never happen, even though the Warriors do have a good package. Um, moving in to, you know, got some big, big college athletics updates. Um, I wanted to get your opinion on the name, image, and likeness. Um, after several states passed laws that would allow college athletes to start making money for themselves off their own brand, the, the Division One Board of Directors on June 30th allowed college athletes starting the first of this month to start making money. Uh, while they are not paid by the universities or colleges, they can make money from endorsement deals, commercial appearances, while still maintaining their eligibility. eligibility. Uh, this was all set into motion when California uh, put the pay-to-play bill up um, in the House and in the, the state Senate. And soon afterwards, other states followed suit. So this has been a thing that's been in the works for a couple years now where college, athletic, college athletes could start to make money. Uh, for themselves off of, you know, appearances, commercials, endorsements, whatever, whatever the case is, what are, what's one big positive. Okay. Like, let me change the question. What, what do you see is the biggest drawback from this, from the NIL implementation? And what do you think is one of the best things about it? I mean, the best thing is that, college athletes can at least be like other college students any typical college student can make money off their name if they want to so i think i think that was an easy short-term solution in terms of allowing athletes to make money off their names because pretty much anyone else is allowed to do that not even just in colleges and in, in the country and in the world that's just, it's it was just a i'm surprised it took this long to be able to fix that part part of the rule i guess the biggest drawback is i think there's a lot of misinformation out there for these athletes because the notion that all these athletes are going to make money from their name, image, and likeness is just a myth and not true. Um, certainly the top, top-notch top b- basketball, football, even baseball and softball, those kind of players essentially can make money off their names. But besides, I'm sure, as we saw earlier this week, the Alabama quarterback who hasn't even made starter yet has made a million dollars already. But every single college athlete isn't the quarterback of Alabama. So I think it's – long overdue to allow athletes to do this, but the notion that everyone's going to benefit off this is definitely just a lie and a myth because only a small percentage of athletes are really going to benefit from this. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I mean, I think March Madness and then obviously college football makes these conferences, these schools, you know, billions, millions upon billions of dollars. And in turn, that money goes to to coaches, the athletic department salaries, along with facility renovations. I'm not going to undersell a free education because I think, to get a free education, you can't undersell that. But, you know, a lot of college athletes that go to school, especially for football and basketball, I mean, they're not really like, they don't really care about the free education. I mean, and even though maybe like one or 2% of those football and basketball players across all conferences are going to go to the NFL and succeed, a lot of them are not. But in the minds of all of those players, they all think that they're going to go pro and they all think they're going to make millions of dollars at the pro level, which just doesn't happen. As you said, I, I think the biggest problem that this could cause is in the locker room. 
Because for me, like, you know, I, I follow Georgia football, you know, so I, I've, I've read a couple things where, you know, some guys are already making money, but because the locker room is so close knit and because Kirby Smart keeps it that way, I don't think it's going to cause any problems. But at other schools, that may not be the same case. It's all about that close-knit group and in the, in the locker room. And I really do believe for some schools, this is going to cause divisions in the locker room. And there are, there are going to be jealous teammates of others. Um, as you said, I mean, I think the only people that are going to make money are the, you know, the best one or two players on a basketball team, the star quarterbacks, or a star offensive player, a star defensive player, and then maybe some Olympians you know, that come back to school to compete again at the collegiate level after they have some success, you know, maybe in Tokyo, that, that could happen as well. But outside of that, I don't really see linemen making money. I don't really see a nose tackle making money or the backup running back or the fourth wide receiver or the backup. Like, the backups aren't going to make anything. And it's really just going to be the star players. I, I do think there's a possibility that this could cause divisions and jealousy within a locker room. Um, let, let's say you, I mean, like, how, how big of an issue do you think that could be? Or am I overblowing the situation? No, I think it's a fair point. And just thinking about even guys in recent years, imagine some of the bigger names that the amount of endorsements they could have brought in, like Trevor Lawrence, Zion, even Tua was a big deal at Alabama. Even, and that was kind of recent, like Najee Harris was the face of Alabama last year. There's so many guys that could make insane amount of money off endorsements. There's probably the biggest one probably like Zion at Duke. Imagine if this rule was in place then. He's basically in a whole different world than all of his teammates, which, yeah, I think it's a real thing. Um, not even just in terms of their players, but responding to coaching, all that kind of stuff. I just think it's all going to be – there's definitely going to be a shift at the top. Just the players that are going to be paid big amounts of money, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out for sure. And uh, last thing on this topic before we talk about Texas and Oklahoma, it's official. Uh, they have asked the SEC if they could join the conference. Uh, that happened earlier today. Um, they're looking to apply to be members of the conference. Um, not sure how that pro long that process takes, but probably would take a couple years before they're actually in the SEC if it works out. But I do think the one another great thing that will come out of this is I do think this is going to have a positive impact on recruiting. I think smaller schools and non-Power 5 conferences can sell the idea to recruits that are, you know, maybe considering them like a Houston or a UCF or a, a USF or a Tulsa. I don't know, like I'm, I'm trying to like an SMU, like I feel like those schools now have the opportunity to tell big time recruits that are close to home, like, hey, like you can stay at home and potentially make money if you're ended up, if you end up being really good instead of going to Alabama, not having a chance to make money and, you know, kind of riding the bench for a couple of years. So I think that'll help recruiting for smaller programs. But I also think this will keep more guys in college. How many times Eddie, do we talk about every year? that there are like 10 to 15 basketball players that go to the NBA draft after a year, they're undrafted or they're a late second round pick. And then, and they end up kind of just riding through the G league or going overseas for three to four years before they maybe get a chance to be in the NBA. We talk about it all the time. I think guys having a chance to make money will help guys not rush into a decision to go pro and come back and continue to develop and get an education. We'll also have an opportunity to make money. I think that's something that not a lot of people are talking about. But I think this could help the competitive balance in college basketball. And I think it'll bring some value back to some of the traditional rivalries that we've seen over the years. Yeah, I agree. I think it could play play a role in football, probably the football, baseball, and basketball. I think in those three sports in particular, to your point, it's really the point that guys may lean towards staying in school, knowing they can make a little bit of money to 
feel comfortable and allow themselves to develop as players and just continue to get better and better and hopefully have a better shot at it instead of just throwing your throwing your your name into the ring and hoping for the best, which hasn't turned out well for a lot of athletes. But yeah, it's I think it will allow allow athletes to be at least the ones that are really succeeding at the highest level of their sport. I think it will allow them to have a little bit more patience and instead of just rushing to the NBA when in many cases a lot of these guys aren't ready, as you said. Uh, let's talk a couple minutes. You know, we got about 12 more minutes left. Um, just a couple minutes on Texas, Oklahoma. Um, I'll give my pitch first, and then I'm, and then you can kind of give your take. I, I think this is all about money. It's kind of obvious. This is all about money. And, you know, I think right now the SEC commissioner, Greg Sankey, a lot of people are saying he's the Roger Goodell of college football. He's running the show. Um, I think it's pretty obvious. Like, the SEC has been dominating college football for like 12 years. I mean, like they run the show and, but what I'm re- what I'm really concerned about is what is, I don't understand. Like, obviously it's about money and Texas is a big brand, but that's all Texas is. It's just a big brand. I mean, they haven't been a great team. They've only won three conference titles in the last 25 years. And they really haven't been nationally relevant since they lost to Alabama in the national championship game 12 years ago. So I think for Texas, this is a huge mistake. Because I, obviously, if you take the money aside from a competitive standpoint, I look at Texas right now, they're not better than Georgia. They're not better than Alabama. They're not better than Oklahoma. And if I had to bet, I would say that they wouldn't be better than LSU, Auburn, or Florida. So where does that leave them? They're like the sixth or seventh best team in the conference. I don't think they're better than Texas A&M right now. So they're like seventh or eighth. I mean, that's like, that's that's not great. And so I think for Texas, like, this is not great for them. I mean, the Big 12 is not nearly as strong as the SEC, and they still couldn't win in the Big 12 with a lot of bad programs. Uh, yeah, that's concerning for me. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I just think with the SEC, we see it all the time. You know, when you have a week to prepare for a team, it's not easy. I mean, Oklahoma can prepare for SEC teams with three weeks of prep. Even with that, they don't have a lot of success in the college football playoff, and they've struggled against SEC teams when they get there. Um, I, you could say the same thing with Oklahoma. I think they're a really hard team to prepare for on one week notice, but the SEC, you're playing five, six, seven, huge national national games every year and for Oklahoma, the last 10 years, I mean, they might play two big games every year in the regular season against Texas and, you know, maybe Oklahoma state or a TCU or a Baylor. But I mean, outside of that, I mean, the SEC, you're playing big time games every single week. And I just don't think that Oklahoma and Texas, they don't feel like SEC teams. Um, but I know it's about the money, but I just feel like both of these teams are not going to be nearly as good as they were in the Big 12 as they're on the SEC, let's say you. Yeah, I mean, Sarah was a shock to me, and I think it would be weird to see when it eventually does happen, assuming it does. But yeah, on the football side, it's going to be talking. Texas has been – Tom Herman wasn't great, but he certainly – he had really good teams there. He was winning over eight games every year, and – they let them go. So their expectations are through the roof. And now go, if you want to go to the SEC, the competition essentially is going to double this. Not no disrespect to teams. Like they're not, there's no, on a football scale, Kansas football, there's no SEC. There's no, there's no like that. There's pretty much. Well, every, I mean, maybe Vandy, but you know, you know what I mean? But yeah. <laughs> as you said, they what are they the seventh best team in the SEC football wise? It's, I think it's a reach. I mean, I think the, the basketball side can be interesting because they, Texas and Oklahoma are certainly both have new coaches. Texas may arguably have the best one, maybe the best co- coach in college right now. He, I think he's up there. And even Porter Moser 
for Oklahoma basketball. I think from a basketball standpoint, it probably makes sense the most or might help them the most. But as you said, from a football side, yes, Oklahoma has been better than Texas, but is Oklahoma even a top three team in the SEC in your opinion? I don't even know. That, that's that it's up to gauge, you know, given how good you know, the SEC to me is like a mini NFL. I mean, they send dozens of guys to the NFL every year and they always seem to have some of the best coaches in college football. Uh, I know Lincoln Riley's up there. He's probably a top five coach, but you know, I just think they just don't have the makeup of an SEC team and that could change with recruiting, but um, kind of moving into the NFL, Aaron Rodgers. This to me is like just the saga that never ends. Um, you know, I feel like there's a new Aaron Rodgers story every day. And, you know, for me, I've always said that with Aaron Rodgers, it's like, can we stop talking about Aaron Rodgers until there's a significant development? Like, I don't care if Aaron Rodgers is looking to sell his house or he's renewing a membership at an exclusive golf course in Wisconsin. Like, I don't care. Does, it means something, but it doesn't mean a lot. And so until there's a significant development, like Aaron Rodgers says something on the record or instead of being super vague and having former teammates on NFL Network and ESPN say stuff for him, until he says exactly what's on his mind, it's a non-story. So as of now, it seems like Rodgers will play next year. It's not official official, but it seems like it's going to happen. Um what are your expectations for the Packers? I mean, I kind of feel like it's their division to lose, but I mean, how much of a distraction do you think Aaron Rodgers is going to be this year? Or do you think it's going to be business as usual? It's not really going to be a story until after the season and they're going to be really good again. I personally think once Rodgers, I mean, eventually he's going to have to talk to the media training camp. Maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the next day. But I think until then, there's going to be a lot of questions. I don't know. We haven't really heard from him, and he's deflected every situation to talk about it. So I, I think potentially it could be a smooth sailing year. Potentially it could be a very rocky year. I just think until we hear from him, it's hard to get a real sense of where he's at, where the team's at. So I think it's a big wild card right now in that area, in my opinion. I'm just going to throw a bold take out there. Um, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll do our NFL predictions, you know, record, you know, for playoff teams, you know, division winners, maybe in a few weeks, but as the season gets closer, but I'm telling you right now, the Vikings could steal this division. I don't know. Like I said it last year, right? I said the Packers would win the division last year, but I didn't know that Rodgers was going to be as focused as he's ever been. I mean, that was some of the best football he's played in years. Um, so I don't want to jump ship and say the Vikings are going to win the division because I think if Rodgers is focused, they will win, but it's hard to say what's, Rogers mindset this year because he doesn't really talk about it I think the Vikings are a wild card team but I wouldn't be surprised if they steal the division like that wouldn't surprise me at all whatsoever even though I'm not the biggest fan of Kirk Cousins uh you know their defense had a lot of turnover last year in a COVID year so they played a lot of rookies and second year players and they struggled early and they got better as the season went along uh I don't love Kirk Cousins but he does put up numbers. They do have Dalvin Cook, Thielen, and, and J.J., uh, you know, Irv Smith's looking for a breakout year at tight end. So they got some good weapons offensively. Offensive line seems to be better. And the defense, uh, year under their belt, they play for a defensive coach. They got Patrick Peterson in free agency. I, I think they'll they'll be right with Green Bay step for step throughout the season. Yeah, I mean, I think the Packers are probably the biggest question mark in the league. It's probably not a bold take, but um, – yeah, absolutely. If the Packers don't come out and play like they did last year and have that focus in the who knows how if Rodgers knows this is last year in Green Bay, is he 100% locked in winning a Super Bowl? 
who knows? And I think it, I think his first time he talks to the media is going to be a big part of that. But yeah, the Vikings they definitely def, definitely disappointed last year, but certainly a talented team. Can Kirk Cousins do enough? They have weapons for sure. The O lines improved. Their defense. Mike Zimmer typically has a good defensive team, so I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to happen. I think the Packers will be okay, but yeah, I certainly. If there's a team to top them, it certainly is the Vikings. Actually, you know what? I don't know if it runs out. Do you remember if the podcast runs out at an hour? If it's if you're on your phone, I don't remember. That's a good question. I think it might, but I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. So we're gonna we're gonna pretend like it doesn't. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll we'll see what happens in a few minutes. Um, Deshaun Watson, um, we're like, this is this is even weirder than the Aaron Rodgers situation because like we haven't talked about Deshaun Watson in like three months. I mean, like I don't think anyone's talked about him until the last few days with training camp basically starting like you know yesterday and now obviously today everyone's reporting. Um, do you think Deshaun Watson gets traded before the season? I think he will, but the question is. What are they going to get for him? Because, you know, with this ongoing with these ongoing lawsuits, it's likely, you know, that all of these civil lawsuits will be settled. That's how it usually works. But as far as an image, because like, listen, the, the franchise quarterback is the face of the franchise. No matter how you spin it, it doesn't matter how good or bad they are. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the quarterback gets all the headlines, good or bad. Um, so. How do you think that's going to affect trade talks? Because, you know, I think the Texans are going to want three to four first-round picks and maybe a couple players for Watson. But I just don't know if they're going to get that given the ongoing, you know, civil lawsuits and it hasn't been settled yet and we don't really know 100% what's really going on. There hasn't been a lot of updates. So, I mean, how do you think that's going to affect trade talks with teams? Yeah, it's so interesting to see how a trade could happen right now. And I think a lot of the teams that were rumored to be involved almost solve quarterback situations this offseason. Like the Niners, they drafted Trey Lance. The Jets were rumored, and they drafted Zach Wilson. Uh, there's certainly there were other teams out there, even the Bears a little bit, and they got they drafted their quarterback, Justin Fields. So I don't know what team would be maybe the Eagles, but I don't know. And Den- like Den- Denver, might, Denver might be like one of – two or three teams that could actually really use a quarterback right now. But I mean, for me, like it's really tough to, to judge because, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I just think right now for any team, they don't want to deal with the PR crisis that the Texans are dealing with. And I think that has a huge part, you know, you don't want to damage or, you know, tarnish the image of the organization by making a a trade for a guy with, we don't really know what's going to happen at the end of the day. Yeah, it's absolutely a fair point. So it's certainly a mystery in a bunch of different areas for sure. Where do you kind of see Deshaun Watson in the hierarchy of quarterbacks in the NFL? Because, you know, I think he's like real close to the top five. Like if I had to choose, like everyone talks about Josh Allen and we'll talk about Josh Allen in a second, assuming we don't run out of time here. But, you know, I would take Deshaun Watson over Josh Allen. I, I know Josh Allen's got a cannon of an arm and he's really improved over the first three years. But, you know, Deshaun Watson to me is just a gamer. Like he just, this guy just wins games and, you know, he's never had a great situation around him. He's always had bad offensive lines and, you know, bad head coaches and bad management. I mean, kind of similar to, you know, what, you know, Sam Darnold went through with the Jets, except he's way better than Sam Darnold. So, I mean, like, where do you kind of put him in the hierarchy? I mean, I, I think he's real close to the top five, if not in the top five. Yeah, I agree. I think he's either a top five or right on the brink of being a top five for sure. Um, 
has anything needed a star quarterback, he has it. Um, I think I agree. You definitely could make the case he you would rather have him than Josh Allen for sure. Um, I think he probably is in that top five just because he's really carried teams to the playoffs his whole career. That I think we both could agree really had no business being in the playoffs in certain years. I'm just like watching the clock here. <laughs> Hold on, I'm gonna give it a few seconds. Hopefully, this is like doesn't cut off. Like that'd just be a really anticlimactic ending. Oh, cool. We're good. We can keep going. Uh, I won't hold you too much longer. Maybe like five, ten more minutes. Um, but um, so uh, because now that we have a little bit more time, we get to talk about my Steelers and your Jets maybe for a little bit. Um, it's my favorite time. Um, Melvin Ingram to the Steelers. How impactful of a move is that, um, do you think, for the Steelers? I think from my perspective, it's good for their depth. Um, I thought they lacked a lot of depth. Um, you know, an outside linebacker, pass rusher when Bud Dupree signed with the Titans. So I think from that perspective, it's a low risk, high reward signing, one year deal. It's a prove a deal. He's looking to prove that he still got it, even at his age. And I think for depth purposes, you know, I think so. I think the Steelers are going to get a motivated um, veteran Melvin Ingram. And I also think that it helps their depth. But I mean, how how impactful do you think he can really be for the Steelers this year? Yeah, I think it's a position of need for sure. Um after Bud Dupree left, I think he can make an immediate impact. And I think the theme for the Steelers, thinking about it, there's a lot of guys on the Steelers that have a lot to prove this year. In terms of a prove it deal, definitely him. And Juju has a prove one year deal. Big Big Ben has kind of been written off as a quarterback. He has a lot to prove. Uh, TJ Watt probably should have won Defensive Player of the Year. So you know that's in the back of his mind going into the season. Um, even drafting a rookie in Najee Harris, your, your young offensive line. So I think he fits the mold in terms of. He's going to be ready to go. He sounds like he's excited to be in Pittsburgh. So it's certainly a perfect fit. And both on the field and from a locker room standpoint and what his goals are, I think it, I think it's a perfect match. I mean, how, how good do you think the Steelers can be this year? Because I feel like, you know, obviously I'm a fan. So maybe sometimes I'm not fully objective. But, like, what do you think their ceiling is? And what do you think is, like, the worst possible scenario that they could have this year? Like, as far as, like, you know, how their season ends, like, What's like the worst case scenario, but also what's their ceiling? I mean, to say their ceiling is making the Super Bowl, I think it's a little bit of a reach. Certainly, could be a playoff team. Certainly, could win a game or two in the playoffs. I don't know how high their ceiling really is, but my only worry is the offensive line. Yes, they've added some young guys. Um, it should be interesting, but I think it kind of worries me because I think it, the O line issues kind of derailed the Steelers' season last year. I know they add some youth and add some young players in, in the draft and free agency, but. If the old line can hold up, I think they could be a really strong playoff team and possible contender in the AFC. But if the O-line looks like it did last year, I think the Steelers could be in some real trouble, potentially missing the playoffs. I think the worst-case scenario would probably be a 9-18 and because Tomlin doesn't lose – he doesn't go under 500 often. So I think the worst-case scenario would be just missing out on the playoffs. But I think this is definitely a playoff team. Pretty much every other position area is pretty much set, except the O-line has something to prove. But there's a lot of talent on this team, and I think you would agree with that. What do you what do you make of the the media portrayal and perception of the Steelers? I mean, I think to a certain extent, I think it is a little fair, but at the same time, it's like I feel like the media never gives them any respect or love when they win, but when they lose, it's like oh, like Big Ben is just a, a gunslinger, and Tomlin can't win big games, and they make men mental mistakes, and you know, I just feel like the perception of this team the last few years is. You know, it's just unfair, you know, when they win, 
it's like, oh, they're not a good team, but they won. Even though everyone says all the time, you know, it's hard to win in the NFL, but yet when they do it, the criticism's unreal. And then when they lose, it's like, oh, well, we told you, you know, they're not as good as everyone says they've been. You know, their record is very misleading. You know, all this about Big Ben and Tomlin can't win big games anymore or whatever. Like, how do you how do you kind of look at that? Because I, I, to me, like as a fan, like it's really annoying and it really pisses me off because I don't see the same criticism for Tom Brady. When Tom Brady loses, it's, oh, you know, he didn't have enough help. Oh, Brady's line was bad. Oh, Brady made a bunch of mistakes. No, it's not like that. Like Brady doesn't get the same criticism. I know his longevity and his success is undeniable, but if you're going to hold guys to a standard game to game and you don't do it for Brady, you just like try to romanticize the past. It's the same thing with Mahomes, the same thing with Lamar, it's the same thing with Josh Allen. Yeah, I just feel like a lot of these guys don't some guys get criticized more than others. I just feel like it's a double standard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some even people that are predicting standings to put the Chargers ahead of the Steelers, just an example, or the Raiders. I'm sure, I doubt that's even an example. More like a team like the Chargers. I think it's a, it's hard for me to do that just because Herbert certainly put up big numbers last year, but maybe the coaching had a little bit to do with it. But they didn't win games, which ultimately got you to the playoffs. The Steelers have traditionally, other Tomlin, Big Ben from the whole way, have found a way to win games. I think that's important. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's. A lot of disrespect for the Steelers, as you said. When they when they win, it's almost, oh, they didn't do this and this and this. They're not this good. When they lose, it's like, oh, I told you so. So yeah, I totally agree with you. It's it's weird how the Steelers are talked about from the media as a whole, for sure. I'll just say that I've said I've told you this for months. I'll continue to say it. The Steelers' season is going to come down to one thing, one thing only. You already you already mentioned it. The offensive line, you know, they don't have to be elite. Um, if they are one of the, you know, if they were a top. 15 offensive line in the league like they don't have to be special they just got to be good enough and if they can be good enough and I said it last year and I'll say it again the lack of a running game last year was the reason why Big Ben fell apart physically at the end of the year when he couldn't throw the ball down the field and when his accuracy was plummeting you know remember Big Ben was playing career football the first half of the year I mean he was being talked about as an MVP candidate when they were you know undefeated uh, and then as soon as they started to lose, it was like, oh, well, Big Ben is, is too old. He needs to retire. No, like that's not what people were saying first half of the year. So I'll say this again. Big Ben should not be throwing over 45 times a game at this point in his career. They need a running game again. The Steelers have always prided themselves on running the football. But ever since Le'Veon Bell left, they've never been the same. So I think they drafting Najee Harris, getting some youth and energy up front will, I think, help. I don't think their offensive line is going to be as bad as people think. And I think that'll help Big Ben kind of stave off um, age and I think he'll he'll play better this year but again they can't be asking him to throw 50 times a game at his age um, you know last year he was coming off of major elbow reconstruction surgery and so to ask him to be throwing that many times a game was just unfair to him and I think that derailed their season uh, a couple more topics um, what are your I know we've talked about this kind of off the podcast but like what are your expectations for the Jets this year like for you like I think I asked you this before, like a week ago, but for you, like, what would be a successful season for the Jets? Like, what, what, what's a realistic, successful season for you? I mean, personally, I'm not going to put a number on it in terms of wins, which kind of sounds bad. Um, but, sir, I just want to see this team improve. There's a lot of young talent. There's a lot – it really is a real, very young team all around. Um, I think that the, the Jets have the right philosophy, finally, with Salah and Douglas. They want to build through the trenches. We've said that for years. They want to build the offensive line. They want to build the defensive line. I think they've taken the initial steps towards doing that. So 
this the talent level on this team this year compared to last year is evident in my opinion. I think they've upgraded almost everywhere except I think corners a little bit concerned, but I think they've upgraded pretty much everywhere. Um, maybe five to seven wins. I think that's attainable. Maybe maybe if all things go well, maybe more than that. But I just think I want to see obviously the quarterback Zach Wilson. I want to see him play well. The young linemen that the Jets have, the young defensive players. I want to see everyone. I just want to see improvement because. I think again. I think the Jets in past years have almost rushed the process multiple times, and I think they're finally starting to build the right way through the draft. I know free agency came, and a lot of Jet fans were like, "Oh, we're not signing him. We're not signing him." But Douglas said it from the start; he wants to go through the draft and write signings, and he's he's stayed true to that. So I think I think you would agree they're on the right track. To say that they're a potential playoff team, I think it's a little bit soon for that. I I agree with you on a lot of what you just said. I know I give the Jets a lot of a lot of uh, slander. I, I slander them a lot and I make fun of them a lot, but in all seriousness, I do think Joe Douglas has done a really good job of, you know, understanding that in this league, even in today's NFL where you air it out and the running game is not as uh, big of a factor. At the end of the day, the teams that win the Super Bowl are strong in the trenches and can run the football when necessary. And that's exactly what the Bucs did this past year. They were one of the best teams late in the year in the trenches and their running game came alive in the playoffs. And that's why they were able to win because Tom Brady wasn't asked to throw the ball 50 times a game. Um, I, I don't know. I don't like Zach Wilson at all. Um, you know, I really don't know what to expect from him. I think out of all the quarterbacks in the draft, I think he's got the biggest bust potential. Uh, he's got some traits that could be good in the NFL. Um, he's obviously very mobile and he can make off platform throws, which, you know, guys like Mahomes and Josh Allen can make. Um, so there, there's some things to like, but, you know, the lack of competition, you know, he put up a lot of big numbers last year against bad teams, you know, because, you know, BYU was supposed to play like a few like Pac-12 schools, maybe a Big 12 school last year. But because those conferences basically canceled non-conference play, they had to scramble just to get a season in. So we weren't able to really see what he could do against better teams. But, you know, I, I don't know, like Zach Wilson made such a big jump from his second year as a starter to his last year at BYU. And I think a lot of that had to do with just the bad schedule, like the bad um, opponents that they played. I think the, I think the key to the Jets season is how does Robert Sala fare against the other elite coaches? I think the AFC East might have the best collection of coaches in the NFL. Truly. I mean, they're up there with the NFC West. The NFC West has Pete Carroll, Sean McVay and uh, Shanahan, but um, Bill Belichick is obviously the best coach in the NFL. Um, and then Sean McDermott and what he's done in Buffalo is incredible. And then obviously Brian Flores is one of the few Bill Belichick assistants that has succeeded to this point. Uh, he basically built that team up from nothing. I think that's the key to the season for the Jets, how Robert Sala fares in, in division play against those three coaches. Well, I think determine their um, what they could do this season. But, I, you know, yeah, you're right. They have a lot of holes that they got to fix, but I think they have the right trip. I think they're, they're in the, going in the right direction, but – to me, it's all about Sala. Uh, obviously, players love to play for him. He's a player's guy. But how he handles coaching against those other three guys when they play the Dolphins, the, uh, the Patriots, and the Bills, I think, will be um, will be something to look at going forward, assuming he sticks around for three years. That, that's going to be – that's the thing that I want to watch. I want to see how he does against those other coaches. I know there's a, some talent gap, but – you know, great coaches can overcome a talent gap with great coaching and a great game plan. That's what I want to watch with Sala. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of the teams in the NFL that succeed, they almost embody to the reputation, not the reputation, just 
they represent their head coach and who they are. So obviously Sal is an intense, smart coach. So I think the Jets almost they seem flat in my opinion, and that kind of resembled their co- co- their pa- their previous coach. So I, I just think it, it definitely is a broad answer. But to see the to see the m- more fight from the team, this consistently improve. And as you said, if Sal can prove, see what he can prove against maybe the best group of coaches a division has. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's certainly a lot of question marks for the Jets. I think there's a lot of excitement even after last season, but I think there's a lot of a lot of things to be seen still from the Jets. It's kind of hard to make a firm prediction on them in my eyes. I love how you didn't even say his name. Is he, is he, uh, is he like he who must not be named? Yeah, definitely. Is, is yeah, that, that, it, that's what we're going to go with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we're, we're not even going to, we're not going to say that the, we're not even going to say the G word. No, he's, no, he, it was time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I said it was time the day he was hired. I said he was going to get fired within a couple of years. I just want to say that for the record. Uh, yeah, last, too, last, right? yeah, I, yeah, I know. I, I, you were all hyped and I said, no, this, <laughs> this guy is, this guy's terrible. Have fun with that. Um, last question. Um, the Josh Allen hype is unreal. Um, I'm not going to disrespect him by saying he's not a top 10 quarterback based off of last year, but to say that, you know, and, and there were these, there were these comments going into the AFC championship game. He's right below Mahomes. I thought that was absolutely disrespectful and a shot at Mahomes to say that Josh Allen's right below him and right behind him. I thought was insane. And I just thought way over the top. Um, I didn't think Josh Allen played great in the playoffs last year. Um, I'll say it again. The Colts gave it away in the wild card game. The Colts lost that game. The Bills didn't win it. I don't care what anybody says. Bad coaching and a missed field goal and just key mistakes by the Colts lost them that game. Just wanted to say. And then against the Ravens in the, the horrible weather conditions, uh, Lamar and Josh Allen both didn't play well. Um, but in the AFC Championship game, the Bills took an early lead and they just fell behind. Josh Allen couldn't overcome the onslaught by the Chiefs. I think he's a top 10 quarterback, but for me to say that he's top five is ridiculous. I still have Rodgers, Brady, uh, Russell Wilson, and Mahomes ahead of him. And then if, it, if if push comes to shove, I'm taking Lamar Jackson over Josh Allen. I still believe that Lamar Jackson, and I said this before the 2018 draft, and I remember telling you this. Was, did I not say this? He's got the highest ceiling of the five. And Rosen, Allen, Darnold, and Baker, I said Lamar – the, the fact that people wanted him to be a wide receiver I thought was laughable and ridiculous because it's like just turn on the tape and watch him play. This guy can make it all happen. I think Lamar was due for a, a slightly down year, right? I, I, I've said this. I don't know if you agree with me, but like Lamar, I thought the pandemic hurt Lamar the most because Lamar is a is – a, he's, he's trying to become a precision passer, passer and it's all about timing with Lamar. And for him to not have to be able, for him to not be able to work with his receivers in the offseason and not really improve as a passer, I really thought hurt him last year. And I also don't think the Ravens used him as a runner a lot last year. I think they don't want him to get hurt, but he's so great with his legs that you have to use him in the quarterback design run game. I think that's what made him so special in his MVP year. Uh, I think the Ravens need to get back to doing that. But you know, I think Lamar had such a great MVP year. He was he was due for some regression. Uh, but he still was really good and productive, and they got to the AFC Divisional round. He, he won his first playoff game. But I would take Lamar over Josh Allen. I know Josh Allen is a, real, a good runner. He's, a, he's he really improved with his accuracy, and, um, you know, he, he's got a huge arm. He's got a cannon. But at the end of the day, 
I'm going to take Lamar Jackson. I think I really do think Lamar is going to continue to develop as a passer. And I, I kind of look at Lamar like Giannis. I, I really do believe that he's going to win a Super Bowl in the next couple of years. Um, you know, Giannis had a lot of holes in his game, but he was able to overcome that with a great team around him. I, I think Lamar elevates everyone around him. And um, I really do think he's going to have a great year as a passer. Yeah, I agree. I think Allen has more still back to him. Uh, some people consider him a top two quarterbacks in some cases. I think he still has more to prove. He had one really good season. There's no denying that. But, yeah, I agree. I think I'd take Lamar Jackson, too. He Even though Josh Allen's had one an awesome year, I think Lamar has proved more so far. And I think, as you said, the Ravens can utilize him better. I think they're starting to compile a better team that fits him. So I think this year is a big year for both those guys, Allen and Jackson, in terms of their growth as quarterbacks and seeing how what level they can get to, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just think the slander for Lamar is ridiculous. I mean, he's 30-7 and seven as a starter. Like, come on now, guys. Like, what are we doing here? And, and three of those seven losses, he lost to Mahomes. So, I mean, really, like, he's got four losses against teams not named the Chiefs. I mean, I'd say that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, he's got a better, you know – He's got a better yards per pass attempt. He's got a better interception ratio. He's thrown less interception in his career than Josh Allen. He's got a better career QBR, better quarterback rating, takes less sacks. I mean, bro, this guy does a lot of things better. And I know Josh Allen wasn't great his first two years, but those still count on his record. I mean, he's, what is he as a starter? Like he's, he's 28 and 15. Okay. So I, I'm a big Lamar Jackson fan. I, I know he plays for the Ravens. I'm not the biggest fan of the Ravens, but I respect their organization. And I, I've been a fan of Lamar Jackson dating back to his college days. So, uh, like I said, I, I would take him over Josh Allen. It's not a slight of Josh Allen. I, he's a really good player, and he's definitely getting better every single year. Um, and as long as he continues to get better, the Bills are going to be, um, you know, contending um, in the AFC playoffs. But I'd still take Lamar Jackson. Yep, I couldn't agree more. All right, Eddie. Um, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, going to probably be looking to do maybe something else, another show next week at some point. Um, for Eddie Whitman, I'm Corey Grip. This has been the Get a Grip podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear today, please uh, tell your friends. That'd be awesome. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thanks, Eddie.